So two people who kissed Jesus, this is the first kiss in Mark chapter 14, verse 43 to 50. Uh, it says this, verse 43, immediately, so we're cutting right into the action, we're jumping in, we, we, we're, we've jumped a few chapters in the DVD and we're just cutting right into the action, Jesus has been with the disciples in the upper room, they've come down, they've prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, and now a crowd, an unruly mob, are coming to arrest Jesus, and that's what we're cutting into. Immediately, even Jesus, as Jesus said this, Judas, one of the twelve disciples, arrived with a crowd of men armed with swords and clubs. They'd been sent by the leading priests, the teachers of religious law, and the elders. The traitor, Judas, had given them a pre-arranged signal. You will know which one to arrest, he said to them, when I greet him with a kiss. Then you can take him away under guard. It's important to note there that, okay, it was nighttime, but Jesus was not wearing any special robes that distinguished him from the disciples. He was just, he just was ordinarily dressed as they were, and this was the signal to greet, he would be greeted with a kiss. Judas would kiss him. Then you can take him away under guard. As soon as they arrived, Judas walked up to Jesus. Rabbi, he exclaimed, and he gave him the kiss. Then the others grabbed Jesus and arrested him. But one of the men with Jesus, we know from one of the other Gospels that that was Peter, pulled out his sword and uh, cut off the, uh, the high priest's uh, slave's ear. Uh, his name was Malchus, and it, it slashed off uh, the ear. Jesus asked them, am I some dangerous revolutionary that you come with swords and clubs to arrest me? Why didn't you arrest me in the temple? I was there among you teaching every day, but these things are happening to fulfill what the scriptures say about me. And then all his disciples, all his disciples deserted him and ran away. And this is the first kiss. Rabbi! Judas exclaimed, and he gave him the kiss. Well, you know, I'm not suggesting that anyone here is a Judas. Where's the Judas? You're the Judas. He's the Judas. I'm the Judas. I'm not saying that. But this kiss is instructive. There are aspects of helpful uh, instruction, perhaps warning for us, as we look at this particular kiss. The first thing it teaches us is that it's possible to be very close to Christianity, to real Christianity, and be unchanged by it. I mean, Judas was as close as you could get. He was one of the twelve. It's possible to be very close and be unchanged. Judas had traveled with Jesus, you know, three years. I mean, he was there when the blind received their sight and the deaf heard. He was there when, when uh, Jesus um, distributed uh, the miraculously bread and, and fish to, a, to a, a crowd. He was there. He'd heard this incredible teaching that they never heard before. Temple police were sent to arrest Jesus, and a day passed, and they still hadn't arrested him. And when they finally returned, the police returned to the temple, they said, why haven't you brought him in? And they said to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders, they said, no man speaks the way that this man speaks. I mean, Judas had heard this incredible teaching. He was right in the middle of it all. And yet, 
actually unchanged. That's a scary thought right there, isn't it? That you could be that close to the real thing. Wasn't the only one that was close. There were two soldiers at the cross when the, and the blood was actually dripping down near them. And they were more concerned about getting the robe, the clothing. And just behind them, the Son of God is dying for the sins of the world. And they didn't see it at all. For them, it was just another crucifixion. This is just business as usual. You can be very, very close and yet not see it. That's a scary thought. There are many people, you, you, know, you, you know Christians, they've some connection with Christianity or the church in some way, but are unaffected by it. It's, I mean, in a sense, this is my story. That was Judas. He was so close, but unchanged. Secondly, it's possible to look like a Christian and not be one. I mean, Judas did Christian things, didn't he? He prayed and he, he heard sermons and he was, part of the, he was part of the ministry team, actually. He saw, saw the sick getting healed and, you know, you read through the Gospels, you know, and when Jesus in the upper room said, one of you, at the Last Supper, Jesus said, one of you will betray me. They didn't all say, <laughs> well, that's obvious. You know, it's, it's, it's the guy looking after the money. It's Judas. They didn't say that, did they? In fact, as they looked around, uh, it couldn't be any of them. Who, one of you will betray me? What are you talking about? Well, they, they'd learned by then that Jesus, it wasn't wrong. And so they began questioning themselves. Is it me? Could it be me? Could it be me? Could it be me? Could it be me? And then Judas, the hypocrite, knowing that he'd already betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, says, could it be me? You can look like a Christian. Sometimes when, um, I mean, this happens. The gospel comes to you and you realize, you understand it. It's real. It may may be that you've been a churchgoer for a, a, a while. This isn't about if, you've, if this is the first time you've ever... It's not about that. It's not about if this is the first time you've ever heard this. No, you've heard this. You've heard this. But suddenly you realize, actually, I need to respond to this. I, I need this on the inside. I need this on the inside. That was Judas. Jesus said, you must be born again. It's an internal operation of God in the soul that brings life. You know if there's life there, and you know if there isn't, because you can do what others are doing, and just somehow it's just not working right for you. You need to be born again. And you can be born again. You can be. It's not a million miles away from you. God loves you. Thirdly, it's possible to appear to be positive about Christianity, and yet actually be living for sin. That, you know, that's what really got Judas going. That's what, that's what made him alive, was, for him, was for money. It was money. He always had a problem with the money, and then he sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. It's incredible what people will do for money. It's amazing what people will do for money. 
all the normal processes of decision-making, all of that can go out of the window. People do ridiculous things for money, for money. And Judas betrayed Jesus, betrayed Jesus for it. You can look positive, you can be positive about the church and the church's contribution you know, in, in, in various different parts of the world and obviously relief organizations and NGOs that are essentially Christian or based on Christian uh, models. You, you know, you can see that. You can be positive about it. You can say nice things. You can actually even support Christianity in some way or another, but actually yourself be living for sin. That's what really brings you alive. Well, that was what it was like for, for Judas. And sometimes uh, that's... It's a more respectable thing. It looks respectable. And, and those who are respectable really don't like it if their spiritual, uh, if the authenticity of their apparent spiritual life is questioned. Uh, that can seem offensive to someone. How dare you? Um, but actually, God, you know, he knows everything. <laughs> so, and he's not scared of you either. I mean, you know, some people are a little bit intimidating, aren't they? They answer back very quickly, and they've got the right answer, and they can get you in an argument. You can't really think of the right answer, and you go away, you think, oh, yeah, I just said that, and you can't, you know. And then there are some people who are just there, 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 there. But actually, come on. Have you been born again? Do you know God? Have your sins been forgiven? Are you really right with God? Well, that was Judas. So his, his kiss is a kiss of hypocrisy. And, you know, may God save every single one of us from that. And now the good news. <laughs> the second kiss is in Luke chapter 7. So if you have a Bible, you can shift over to there. I'll read it to you. If you don't, uh, again, from the New Living Translation. Uh, one of the Pharisees, verse 36 of uh, Luke chapter 7, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. And so Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman from that city heard that he was eating there, interesting what she did. A certain, so he's having a meal with men. This is, this is only guys, only men at this table. And it's in a Pharisee's house. And a certain immoral woman from that city heard that he was eating there. She brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. And this is an incredible thing. I mean, it's an amazing thing. I, I totally, this woman is a pioneer. She is a, uh, a hero. She sees beyond the restriction and confines of cultural norms of the day. It's a tremendous uh, historical event, this. Anyway. Uh, then she, so she brings this beautiful alabaster jar. I don't, I don't even think she's fully processing the significance of all of this either. Then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. Whoa. When the Pharisee who'd invited him <laughs> saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet. Now, so the reputation of Jesus is being sullied here in the, in the eyes of a non-follower of Christ. If 
if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's touching him, and he's letting him. He's letting her. She is a sinner. Then Jesus answered his thoughts, <laughs> something that Jesus often does. Jesus answered his thoughts. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. Then Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one, that's a lot, and 50 pieces to the other. Okay, that's a lot, but it's, it's not as much as 500. But neither of them could repay him. So he kindly forgave them both, cancelling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, I uh, suppose the one for whom he cancelled the larger debt? That's right, said Jesus. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the first time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. Therefore, she has shown me much love. But a person who's forgiven little shows only little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. Well, the men at the table, I mean, you can feel the ruffle, the frisson of disgruntled disagreement. The men at the table said amongst themselves, who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Wow. I mean, what a story. What a story. So, as I say, it's not really a kiss, is it? It's, it's, it's an avalanche of kisses. It, it's a cluster of, of kisses. And again, there's instruction for us in this second incident. The first thing is this. She knew that she'd sinned. She knew that she'd sinned. She's not pretending to be respectable like Jesus. She's not, she's not trying to project a respectable, uh, altogether, holding it together image like uh, Judas was. And that's because she's weeping. And it may be at this point, I think she does know why she's weeping, but she can't help from weeping because suddenly Jesus is there and she's got to Jesus and she's weeping because it is inevitable. It's inevitable, actually, when the human soul encounters mercy from God that there is an emotional response. This is an inevitable thing. It's just an obvious thing. It's a logical thing. That when the human soul approaches God and finds grace, it, it, it just has to impact you at an emotional level. She weeps. She weeps. She weeps because of grace. She weeps because of 
security and stability and mercy, which, and, uh, which are all summed up in the word love. She weeps because of the love of God. She's met, she's found. She's found it now. She's found the love of God. She's found the thing that she could never find before, that she'd been searching for so long for, as everyone in this room is. Now she's found it. She's found it. What a discovery. No wonder Christians get excited. She's found it at long, long last. And she's weeping. And she, she's weeping also because there's this, there's a kind of confluence or a mingled uh, um, reaction in her, both of the future and the past. So there is, this, there is this response to grace, but there is also the reality of the failure that she has actually experienced. When you come to Christ, you stop pretending it's such good news. Because there's, there's, you can acknowledge the failure, you know? If you just deny it all the time, it's, you're just like a, 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 a guitar string that's being tightened up and tightened up and tightened up and tightened up, and it can become a background tension in, in your life. When you come to Christ, ah, confession of sin, it's a, it's a, a, a wonderfully, it's a gift, it's a, it's a release. There's an acknowledgement. There's the freedom that comes. And, and that's what she's, she's experienced. She's weeping. She feels the impact of her choices. I don't understand people who say they have no regrets. I think they're in denial. They're not really assessing their life or the impact that their choices have made on others accurately at all. You, you have regrets. I have regrets. And, and she, she's weeping because of these regrets. But she's brought them to the right place. And she comes to him. And it says in the Bible, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The proclamation of the Christian faith in any given culture is not the source of guilt feelings in that culture. The proclamation of the Christian gospel is the solution to guilt problems in any given culture. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the answer. And that's what she's found. Again, I don't think she's processing everything exactly as I've Outline, but that's essentially that's what's happening to this woman. So she knew she'd sinned. Secondly, she comes to Jesus. So she brings all of this to the right place. It says she'd lived a sinful life in that town. But when she learned that Jesus was close by, this is an opportunity. And actually, you know, this is true through the Gospels in many different ways. You have to take hold of the moment when it comes to you. There are moments in the Gospels where Jesus is passing by. Who's passing by? It's Jesus. Son of David, have mercy on me. That, you know, or, or if I can only get through and touch the hem of his robe, I know I'll be healed, said the woman with the issue of blood. There are, there are moments where you need to actually take hold of that. You need to actually get hold of God. And today is such a moment perhaps for you. This was certainly for her. But look at the situation. I mean, he's eating in a Pharisee's house, but she, when she learned that he was there, she gets, gets this perfume and she comes to him. Somehow she just knew that he wouldn't push her away. He wouldn't say, 
You need an appointment. You know, excuse me, there are procedures here. God isn't like that. That's one of the things I love about God. God isn't like that. Excuse me, there's a whole pro- there's a procedure here. You know, it's the same with the kids. The kids, the parents wanted to bring the kids to Jesus, and the disciples saying, "Oh no, you know, this is important. You know, we've got stuff to do." Jesus said, "No, no, 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 no. Your protocol and your idea of process and all of that. No, no, no. Jesus is not like a government official or a very important person that there's a whole set of processes before you can actually get an interview with that person. He's available now to you." He's available now. There is a kind of glorious informality about the true and the living God. It's wonderful. But anyhow, she knows if I can only get to him, she doesn't try and clean up her act, her reputation, just make it like, so I can never become a Christian because look at, look at this, look at this. You seem like you've got it together. I know I haven't got it together, but maybe if I kind of kind of adjust as much as I can, then the leap from where I am to where I think you are isn't going to be as extreme. That's a mistake. That's a mistake. What happens is we come with our, okay, what, let me say, brokenness. We come with our sinfulness. We come with our unfinished, uh, unresolved issues with those open questions that still haven't been perfectly answered. We come with all of that and with the tangled up consequences of decisions that we've, been, that we've made sometimes. You know, you, there are people who've got very tangled up, does it mean this? Does it mean that? Do I, what do I need to... Bring all of that. Bring your life. Bring the whole thing. Put it all on the table and come to Christ. And say, God, you sort it out. But I know this. I need to give my life to you. Now, I've got to make a, I've got to make a change. I've got to make a decision. I've got to follow you. She somehow knows if she can get to Jesus. And Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will never push them away. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That is, inter- that is leadership. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you. That's, inter- that's leadership on a, on a global scale. That is leadership. Jesus is stepping forward and he's saying, I will be responsible for you. I will be responsible for you. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. You'll find rest for your souls. You'll learn from me. I'm humble in heart. You'll find it. That is leadership. He's stepping forward and saying, yes, I'll take the weight. You follow me. And you know what? From the weakest to the strongest person, that's exactly what we need. That's exactly what we need. We need him. So thirdly, she was prepared to pay this price. She knows she sinned. She comes to Jesus. She was prepared to pay a price. It wasn't just the rare perfume, although that was an expression of it. How different from Judas, who didn't want to put any money in. She, that wasn't an issue for her. This is an extravagant expression of, of whatever to, to Christ, of wanting to give something to him. The price issue, the cost issue wasn't so much about the perfume. It really was the fact that she was known to be a sinner. And that means there were consequences in her uh, becoming a follower. You know, oh really, you are now becoming a follower of Jesus. I don't think so. You know, that was the, that was the tension for her. How, how could it be? You know, and that, that, in a sense, that's a tension for every single person that becomes a Christian. It's like, you know, uh, people are going to think, 
You know, my sister said to me, first thing, I, I was converted when I was 20. She said, I didn't know you were so weak. And I thought, I'm not. I don't get it. You know, people think different things of me. My dad said to me, my father said to me, I'll give it three weeks. They said if it was politics before, now it's religion. You've just shifted the, the uh, focus of your anxiety. Or <laughs> people don't necessarily understand. She was known to be, you know, she had a colorful past. And people knew it. And so for her to, there's always a reason why it's not really going to work for you. And for her, it's like, People say, oh, so now you've got religion. Oh, so now you're holy. Oh, now you're going to be holier than we are. Oh, right. So there was this possibility of mockery. There was the possibility of uh, an accusation of hypocrisy in her life, as though it could just... But she somehow knew that's worth that. I've got to get to Jesus. I've got to get to Jesus. It's more important to me than what people, how people think of me. I've got to get to Jesus. And so two more short things. Fourthly, she surrenders her heart to Christ. You can see it there, verse 38. She's surrendering to him. And that's really the essence of conversion, is that simple. That's why a child with you know, far less information or, 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 a, uh, or someone who, who really knows very little about Christianity, they, they can surrender to Christ. You just take a step and say, yes, Lord, come into my life. And then your mind and your heart are filled with you know, the information. It's wonderful. I, I think I, I wasn't a complete Wally before I uh, became a Christian, but my intellect came alive after I became a Christian. And I thought I would have to live with irreconcilable problems, but actually the mind and the heart and the soul and the spirit are enlivened and awakened when you come to Christ. The mind is sharpened when, when you come to Christ. And, uh, and um, she surrendered her heart to, to Christ without knowing all of the implications or all of the outworkings of it. There was a vulnerability. And there was a thankfulness in her as well. And because, you see, Jesus could say to her, your sins are forgiven, not just because it's like a divine fiat, but because he, was, he knew he was going to die. He was going to die on the cross for her sins. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. When he died on the cross, he put himself in our place. And the judgment of God against sin was put upon him, was unleashed upon him, and he received the full weight of the punishment for our sins. So that when we recognize that he has taken our place, that in his body he has suffered for our sins on the cross, we can be forgiven. We can be forgiven. And we can say, Lord Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for my sins and you rose again on the third day. Will you come into my life? Change my life. Real life begins then. Real life begins then. She surrendered her heart. And uh, the Pharisee's looking at this, and he's saying, what? Huh, he's supposed to be a prophet. He's supposed to be some great teacher, and he doesn't even know who this woman is. You know, he's obviously not from this town, so he hasn't got a clue. If he knew who she was, and if he was some kind of prophet, but he knows, Jesus knows who you are. Jesus knows who we are. He wouldn't be touched. She's a sinner, says the Pharisee. But he's already behind. 
the, the, the best educated guy at the table has already, has already missed it, is already behind. She's not a sinner, is she? She became righteous in that moment. When she put her trust in Christ, when she put her faith in Christ, she was made righteous before God in that moment. That's why Jesus could say, your sins are forgiven. And they say, they do their, and who can forgive sins, and who is he, what is he talking about, and this, is, this doesn't work, this is nonsense. And he ignores all of that. All of that is undermining her faith, undermining her act of obedience to Christ, undermining her confession of Christ, and he just declares to her, I tell you the truth, your sins are forgiven, your faith has saved you, go in peace. He defends her. Wonderful. Wonderful. You can be forgiven of all your sins. It wasn't cheap. It wasn't easy. The Son of God died on the cross and suffered the punishment and the consequences, the eternal consequences, for your sin when he was on the cross so that you could be free, so that you could be forgiven, and so that you could know the truth. Yes, there is truth. It's so wonderful. For years, we've been lied to that there isn't such a thing as truth, but there is. There really is. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. You can come to him, you can have your sins forgiven, and you can know the truth. You can find the answer like she did.